Hello, I'm Peter McMillan, Executive Officer at Empty Shoulder, and welcome to another episode of Sharing the Couch. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Larrakia people here in Darwin, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and to any other First Nations people who might be watching or listening. Welcome. Today we have Tina Trina Jones joining us as the Chief Executive Officer at Homelessness New South Wales. Trina brings an extensive range of experience in the homelessness sector and working with government on developing and delivering solutions to homelessness. Trina has spent the last eight years with the City of Sydney Council delivering on key policy and program areas, including social housing and homelessness, drug and alcohol, food security, domestic and family violence, and crime prevention. Trina has a track record for building collective impact responses to ending homelessness and, lead, and led the development of the Sydney 10-Year Homelessness Action Plan, the Emergency Response Protocol, Protocol for People Sleeping Rough and Homelessness Assertive Response Team, or HART, which led to long-term housing and support outcomes for people experiencing homelessness. Trina's been at Homelessness New South Wales, I think, now for seven months and um, doing some terrific stuff, and we're very happy to have you on the program. Welcome, Trina. Thank you. Thanks very much, and thanks for having me on. I would also like to acknowledge the land I'm on today, the land of the Darrell people, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Wonderful. And for those who might not have already picked up, uh, Trina, you've obviously got an Irish accent there, um, and I know that you, um, you grew up in, in Ireland. Uh, and went, uh, went to university in Dublin and also in Galway. Um, maybe just tell us a little bit about your story, uh, I guess, growing up in Ireland. And before you went to university, did you have a view about homelessness, what homelessness looked like? Was it a thing that people saw and talked about over there? Yeah, look, I, I grew up in a social housing community, what would have been council housing in Ireland. Um, and, you know, for we grew up in relative poverty. We, I guess we didn't know that. I didn't really know that until I went to university. Um, and I was lucky enough to get into university through an access course, which was um, support for young people from disadvantaged areas. So in terms of the, the drivers of homelessness, I think they were all around us, right? And my, myself and my peers growing up at that time, poverty, domestic and family violence, alcoholism, um, drug use that was a feature of our community but so was connection and strength and um, hard-working people so obviously with every community there's diversity but I think we were exposed to some of those um, larger challenges that I would be working on today. Yeah and in terms of I guess the uh, the, the needs or level of assistance that people in that, in those circumstances say back in Ireland did you feel that the, there was a, an acknowledgement and, a, and some form of appropriate response from authorities at the time? Look, the reason I was actually working as a DJ and a nightclub promoter um, and planning events and um, I actually did my degree in communications. So my plan was to go and, and be a journalist or go and work on the radio um, coming from that events and PR background. And increasingly, all of my journalism assignments while I was at uni became about social justice issues because I really felt like the media was a way to tell the story about some of the what I felt were injustices and still do. Um, for example, I remember doing stories on um, radio documentaries on teenage mothers because we know that there is a perception that they're automatically judged on how old they look and talking about people, not statistics and how an education for a mother is an education for a family. And at that time in Ireland, young mothers had to choose between 
what our rent receipts are would be like Commonwealth rent assistance or access to education. And so what was happening and I made my thesis documentary about that was how young mothers had to choose between homelessness or an education. And, you know, these are the kinds of systemic drivers that hold poverty in place in our communities. And I became increasingly passionate about that and um, studied community development and, and found my, my passion and, and my calling, really, my vocation. Wonderful. Um, no, that's, that's, that's really powerful. And I guess um, just in terms of the way that um, people in Ireland frame issues around poverty, homelessness um, and, and those uh, other challenges uh, compared to Australia. Do you notice much of a difference in a dialogue in, in Australia compared to, say, Ireland and the UK? I think in Ireland, the differences between Ireland and Australia, which I still, um, even though I'm here more than 10 years and have spent more of my adult life here than I have in Ireland in a way, <clears throat> I think the differences here is there's a very obvious class system in Ireland and the UK, which plays into um, some of the perceptions and responses to social issues, right? And so I think that becomes... Um, part of community organizing movements. So in Ireland, you've got the working class movement. In the UK, you've got the working class movement that says, you know, we won't accept these injustices and we must have this base level of social infrastructure to respond to the needs of um, people who are disadvantaged or people who have less income. And while that has varying degrees of success across different challenges, I didn't see that here at the scale that I may have seen that in Ireland and the UK, the level of community organizing um, and responses. And, and that's reflected back in, you look at the housing numbers in New South Wales, we've got 4.7% of all housing is social housing. In parts of London, it's 40%. And you know, in parts of England, it's 40%. In, and the average nationally there is 17%. And I think in Ireland, it's just about 10%. Doesn't so solve, yeah, the whole so issue. But so do you think there's, there's, there's an element of, I guess, organ, political organisation or a voice there that, that makes that more of a, a core a core movement? Um, I, is that, I is think you... so. I, yeah. And it's probably because, um, you know, Australia is a lucky country for some, very not the case for many others. And I think, um, you know, that impact on community of poverty has led to that community organising at a level that has, um, you know, demanded that infrastructure. But Ireland is not, has not escaped the issue of homelessness and more children than ever are experiencing homelessness in Ireland. And um, I know that communities are grappling with responses there as well. And in terms of, uh, I guess, the way that people who are experiencing homelessness are described in Ireland in terms of, you know, you mentioned there was a class system. Is there a level of stigma attached to that? Um, and also, I guess, what we say in Australia, a bit of nimbyism, that, that people mm -hmm. don't want to live next to communities that have social housing tenants. Do you find that kind of story playing out as well? Look, I think social housing or council housing is certainly more acceptable in the UK and Ireland. And um, you, it's, it's more evident. So mixed tenure communities, what we're calling mixed tenure communities here, are a feature of the, the urban landscape across the board in Ireland. Like that's exactly the community I grew up in. You know, my mum was in a position um, at the time of my support from um, my dad, although they were separated to buy the home through a rent to buy scheme. So in our street, you would have had neighbors one side that were council housing tenants, 
you know, um, my mother with support was in a position to purchase the house to a rent to buy scheme. And at the front of our estate, then there was private housing. So you get that um, you get that mix of tenure within the same area and everyone goes to the same schools and, you know, you start to meet people across the um, the spectrum of affordable housing or affordability. And in terms of living in the um, a public housing authority, what did you call it? A different name, I think. It's... Yeah, council housing because council we don't have housing. state government, so it's council, okay. local government, and um, and uh, national government. Okay. So in terms of living in council housing, did you also have a sense that there are a lot of people who were maybe there was house crowding um, or couch surfing, and also street homelessness in Ireland as well? Did you have those phenomena playing out? I mean, now in Ireland, there's a lot of people sleeping rough and um, sleeping on the street in Ireland. But when I was growing up, that wasn't something that you would have seen a lot of. I mean, there's, um, you know, we could name the three people that were sleeping rough in Galway. Like it was that kind of community. Right. It was, I mean, when I was growing up, Galway probably had the population of 60,000 people. It's not exactly a huge place. Um, so we didn't, but in Dublin and other areas, you would have seen, um, yeah, you would have seen greater populations of people who might have been sleeping rough. But there's certainly, I mean, that only represents the tip of the iceberg. There would have been a lot of people at risk of losing their tenancies and who would have been um, needing to access council housing or supported rental accommodation in Ireland. And we, I grew up around that. And um, you managed to find your way up to um, Western Australia. Uh, I know you did some work with um, the Salvation Army. Uh, as a community, no, sorry, as a community development and training manager back in 2010 and 2011. What was the story there? How did you come out to Australia and how did you, I guess, get involved in that role? So when I was um, doing my master's in community development, I um, started to learn about the stolen generation and I was just appalled. Um, I also um, started to follow along with some of the um, teachings and learnings of Jim Ife, who is just a legend, right? And I'm sure many Australians um, and people in our work area out here would know Jim. And so from quoting Jim all through my thesis and reading anything I could get my hands on, I reached out and contacted him and said, look, I want to come to Australia. Ireland was, you know, hit significantly bad by the GFC. There was no sign of a job. There was, you know, hundreds of people, people with PhDs in the Dole office queue. It wasn't looking like there was going to be employment, particularly not for community workers. Um, and so thinking about what the opportunities were and going, actually, if I can go anywhere, I want to go to I want to go to remote Australian communities and um, I want to work with people in community and I want to learn. And so I was lucky enough to um, work in the Salvation Army with and got an incredible education from an, uh, a senior Aboriginal liaison officer there, Kenny Latham, who just taught me about connection and working in regional remote community in Western Australia and just learned so much from the people that worked with there. So I was very grateful for that, but also gave me um, a deep understanding of the out-of-home care services and all the young people that were exiting out-of-home care into homelessness and trying to our whole job was trying to knit together support for the young people that were exiting care in Perth and returning to country and didn't have supports there. And so we're, we ran a statewide brokerage service and then we did training and education for services, small services on things like child protection case management and um, yeah, some community development principles. But I've learned, I learned more than we we shared, I think. Yeah, that would have been an, an amazing experience. I'm sure a lot of our 
viewers will be really keen to hear that because it's in Western Australia working with First Nations people around um, culturally-led responses as well. Um, and a big issue with children leaving care and not having uh, stable housing to, to exit into, um, for sure. I want to um, just, I know you worked at YWCA Australia as well in Sydney for a period of time, but I'd like to, I guess, um, move to the City of Sydney work you did. Mm -hmm. So City of Sydney is the uh, local government, uh, the main local government area for the City of Sydney. Um, and you were working there as a manager for homelessness and then also as the manager for the Safe City program as well. I'm really interested in this because I'd like to get your thoughts on um, the role or as seen by, by council as to what they need to do in the homelessness space, the role they can play, and um, whether that's changing and whether there's a little bit more of a what dynamic you kind of saw there uh, with with council and mm. how they perceive their role um, around um, yeah helping address homelessness in their in their local government area. Look, local governments are a critical player in our space, and I think are a far a far underutilized asset in responding to homelessness. They have a foot on the ground in terms of understanding their residents' needs. They're the go-to for so many things for residents in the local area. And they help us to work in a place-based way um, so they can have a foot on the ground and a hand in the strategy at state government and federal government level. They punch well above their weight. So the city of Sydney, you know, uniquely positioned as um, a global city council, you know, positioned me, um, catapulted me really into a space where we were able to shape policy that had far-reaching impact beyond what might have been another council, for example. And so shaping up that 10 year um, homelessness action plan, building on the work of others. Right. So I think everyone who was in that role of the manager of homelessness at City of Sydney really added to um, lasting legacy for the broader sector because the role works closely with the sector to draw out ideas and then help echo them back to state government and help them to be achieved on the ground. So, yes, getting the 10 year action plan up, but also managing very complex issues like um, 60 people in tents in Martin Place or challenging issues around managing the rights and responsibilities of people who are sleeping in the public domain was an interesting insight because council are managing the stakeholders who've got a diverse set of views around yes we want people to be supported um, but we also have rights to access the public space and we feel like that's not being respected by everybody who's using the public space of course, on the other side of that, it's, you've got very traumatised and, you know, sometimes very vulnerable people who need support and moving them on is not the option. So the City of Sydney had a no move on policy. It was always about linking the person with support and coordinating that support around them. And that's why I was, you know, able to retain myself in the job for as long as I did, because my values really strongly aligned with the organisational values. And that was about creating a city for all making sure that everybody had access to housing and that um, people who were experiencing homelessness, that it was rare, brief and non-recurring. Yep. So we set up um, a multidisciplinary team to do outreach. It was called the Homelessness Assertive Response Team. And it just, you know, found everyone's name on the street, made sure we linked in with everyone. We were working with them seven days a week, um, making sure that if you did become homeless, you're found in the street, you'd be linked quickly with support. And you know, was supporting hundreds of people to be housed and yet hundreds more were coming in. So it was um, a challenge to be at the pointy end of things and wanting to work in the intervention. 
I'm curious, uh, Trina, around the the, the, the people that um, the Assertive Outreach team will come into contact with. And mm. I just mentioned in Northern Territory, I'm not sure if it's different or if it's actually quite similar, but we have people who are seeking housing who are sleeping rough, who need permanent housing, but we also have a lot of mobility into Darwin from outlying communities for people who come to town and get stuck because they run out of money and can't get back home. Did you have that kind of mixed um, groups as well? Because there is a bit of a definition here, I guess, between visitors, so to speak, who who are sleeping rough and maybe people who just don't have any option and are sleeping rough. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, like absolutely saw that. And and actually, you know, when you'd go on patrol, like you'd be delighted to find someone like that in a way, not because they were their circumstances, because you knew you could have them, right? You knew you could get them the brokerage to get support home and then that they could be linked in with a support service where they were, because obviously there's a set of conditions that puts you in that situation and you don't want them to lose their tenancy. But then the other group were the public space dwellers. So you had a group of people who have accommodation or housing options. I mean, they're this, I have, I must say they're they're really the smaller percentage. They don't represent the people who are on the street, many of whom don't have accommodation and support. Most, I would say. But there is a small number of people who um, have been homeless for a long time and may have accommodation or may have secure tenure of housing, but have zero connection to the community and are feeling very isolated, very alone. And so, you know, in our work around ending homelessness, it's not enough to say ending rooflessness. You know, we've got to make sure that we're building connection for people because otherwise they'll find themselves back on the street or in situations that are potentially unsafe. Um, because they don't have that connection and that broader social safety net. And we saw a lot of that and it was sad. We saw a lot of that and we still do. And in terms of the work that City of Council did, um, how did how did you, was it like a, a, a no wrong door sort of approach where you would refer people to services or did you have particular arrangements with certain uh, charities? How did that tend to work? So we needed to work for the outreach patrol right so what we did was we brought all of the services out of their office including the housing workers who in you know notoriously was come to the housing office to fill in your forms we managed to get them out of the office off their forms onto more you know easier to fill in digital forms um and so everyone went together every tuesday and um then on fridays um a clinical psychologist plus a nurse plus an outreach worker went out so if you spotted anyone on a tuesday that needed outreach medical support they'd get it there and then but they could also get follow-up mental health support yeah because people who didn't want to go into hospital they didn't want to necessarily go in um and so having all those services out there gave everybody a shared understanding of the issues and made the referral pathways easier in addition to that the city of Sydney funded the state government. So that's very unique. So well, say that again. They, they yes, funded the state. They government. funded the state government to contribute to ending homelessness in Sydney, and that looked like a one point four million dollar grant per year to the state government to fund um, Aboriginal community controlled organisations to do outreach, youth services to do outreach, and a specialist um, street to home program, NEMI National. And so I was able to set those um, the business case up for that through the council because that's where the, the gaps were on the ground for us at that time. So there was um, adult outreach for assertive outreach, but there wasn't any for youth and then mm. there wasn't any culturally specific options. So we were able to pull together that multidisciplinary team because we had the resources and hundreds of people were housed um, as a result of that. I'd like to ask you also about the question of public discussion or messaging around street homelessness in that context, because in, in the Northern Territory, 
it often gets conflated with antisocial behaviour and crime, uh, whereas the reasons, as you know, better than most uh, are many and varied as to why people are sleeping rough. And often they're uh, law-abiding people who just don't have a place to stay um, and often get, um, I guess, mixed up, I'd say, with uh, maybe groups who are doing the wrong thing from an antisocial behaviour perspective. Um, and we sometimes find, I guess, up here that uh, people who are referred to as itinerants or people who are moving in from other communities are often seen as like on a collective basis as being being trouble really trouble for business not good for main street um business and um amenity and and issues and neighbors and so forth i just i noticed that you, with your work as a safe city manager you had to improve the actual and perceived safety of sydney so how did you kind of i guess navigate that issue between having a i guess a respectful conversation with community that homelessness isn't you know, the root cause of all of the problems we're having with with um, antisocial behaviour, rough sleeping and, and those kind of issues. Look, and exactly that, and I managed the, the SHARPS program, so the discarded needle and syringe program, alcohol-free zones, um, everything from, um, you know, street sex work to um, in creating safer places to reduce the risk of terrorism or planned acts of harm. So I had the full gamut. When it comes to antisocial behaviour for people sleeping rough or people who are public space dwellers or panhandling, what's happening there is that people who don't have access to um, secure tenure or their own safe and private space are having to live out their private lives in the public domain. And what you might do in your home or I might do in my home um, where we have facilities and the amenity to do that, for example, drink alcohol or use a bathroom um, or if a person is um, uses substances or um, has a, a, a non you know confrontational argument right or whatever yeah. so everything is amplified yeah. in the public space that everything becomes anti-social behavior everything is criminalized and so people who are already disadvantaged for experiencing homelessness are now in this higher threshold of at risk of becoming criminals because they're just living out their private lives in the public domain. The other challenge that we have is the perception is that they're the, the perpetrators of crime when the stats and the evidence showed us they're actually the victim of crime. So homelessness is both a driver and impact of crime in the sense that you're more likely to commit a crime, but for all the reasons I just outlined, because the crimes end up being public nuisance orders because you're living out your public, your private life in the public domain. But also you're more likely to be a victim of crime because you are a vulnerable person in a space where um, people can harm you. Um, and so that becomes really challenging. And, you know, this is something that we need to design better spaces for. And that's why, you know, good growth and good design is critical to responding to the issue as well. I mean, I think you put that really eloquently. Thanks for explaining that. Um, uh, I guess that brings us to Homelessness New South Wales. So you're the Chief Executive Officer there now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about Homelessness New South Wales, who you are, what you're trying to achieve, and I guess the work that you're doing on behalf of your members in New South Wales? So we're the peak body for homelessness in New South Wales, and we exist to build the capability of people and the capacity of systems to end homelessness. So we have a vision for the future where everyone has access um, to a safe place to call home. And so 
our mandate with our along with our members is about making sure that homelessness in New South Wales is rare, brief and non-recurring. And that's what we mean when we say ending homelessness. We've got about 180 members that's made up of people with lived experience, um, predominantly specialist homelessness services who are the ones who deliver the support, but also allies, change makers, people who, you know, want change in this space. And so our membership is growing and this is, um, you know, a really critical time in New South Wales because we've got the national plan, which will influence all of us. Um, but also at the New South Wales level, we have a state election. And we also have the review of the state's housing and homelessness strategies, which are separate now, but we'd like to see that integrated. So what is the state of play of uh, homelessness in New South Wales at the moment? And I guess by way of context, we've just come out of a pandemic, uh, mm. or we're still in a pandemic officially, but you know we've had um, COVID-19 impacts. There's been fires in southern New South Wales and elsewhere, a lot of flooding, unfortunately, for the many communities down there, terrible flooding, really, in New South Wales. Um, as well as uh, a phenomenon that we're seeing really right across Australia where it's so much more expensive to rent now. Rents have gone up as, um, as vacancy rates have plummeted to historic levels in a lot of cases. Um, so it's tough out there for renters. Uh, but what are you seeing on the ground? What's the state of play in New South Wales? So I would say the three challenges that we have um, are that we're seeing more people than ever experiencing homelessness, okay? So we know that Last year, services supported 70,000 people in New South Wales. And at that number, that was about 30% more than services are funded for. So that services stretched beyond their capacity. And still 48% of people who sought assistance were turned away. So we don't even have the full numbers on the people who can't get support. And we know from our research from the impacts of COVID that conservatively, we think that's grown by about 10%. But we also know there's 54,000 people in housing stress across the state. And at a time when increasing numbers of people are homeless, it's never been harder to get access to a housing that's affordable to rent. So when we think about affordable rentals for anyone on job seek, seeker or otherwise, nothing is available. Everything is it's below 1%. And if you've got a disability and require have accessibility requirements, you can take that number down to 0.08%. So we don't have the rentals available. We also have a situation where we don't have the social housing available either. So that safety net, that's critical infrastructure is atrophying in New South Wales. So historically that has been good and that's just been declining for 20 years now. And we're left with about 4.7% of housing is social housing. I'd like to explain that in a different way, if it's okay. So we've got every year in New South Wales, we get um, 70,000 houses are approved to be built. So 70,000 residential dwellings are approved. For whatever reason, 35,000 of those get built. Now of that 35,000, only 2% are social housing. So only 700 are social housing properties. <clears throat> so at that rate, we've currently got 50,000 people on the housing waiting list and the number that's spruced is 10 year waiting list. So that's in priority, it can be two to five years. But at the current investment, to just do the backlog, not including any new people, it will actually take 70 years to house everyone on the housing waiting list. Yeah. It's got more, more people than ever need our support. We can't keep up with demand. You've got, there's nowhere to put people into rentals, even if you can't support them because they're just not available. We don't have the housing infrastructure for that long-term pathway. And this 
is compounded by the fact that, I don't know if you know this, Peter, but New South Wales has the lowest investment in specialist homelessness services in the country. It just, the Productivity Commission found this and our services are funded just $36 per day per client. So it's the lowest funded um, of all the states and territories. And yet we've got one of the, the biggest issues um, in the country. So we're, our challenge is great, but I'm still optimistic about our solutions. Um, but we do, these are the challenges that we're, we're working through, of course, with fire, flood, pandemic, um, and concurrent flooding. Absolutely. And um, so what's the state government's response? I think you mentioned before there's a housing and homelessness strategy review. Is the state government in New South Wales actually building a set number of social and affordable housing dwellings each year or um, has it got a plan or, or how is it kind of, what's, what's it doing at the moment, if anything? So the future directions plan sets the strategy for the investment in social housing. It's just fallen so far below that was never enough to begin with and it's just it's failed it hasn't even reach, reached anywhere near the intended target so we're calling on the government for investment in social housing and the, we've done some modeling on this and it looks like a billion dollars from the commonwealth which could come through the housing australia future fund which is a model that's already been established backed by a billion dollars from the state government um with that would kickstart the investment in social housing in New South Wales for about 5,000 units a year. And then we've proposed the models around a social housing levy and leveraging the work that's been done with NIFIC and superannuation to leverage even further units through a fund and investment stream um, so that we could then get to about 10% of all dwellings being social housing by 2050. That's what we want to get to, so 10% by 2050, because that's what the research is telling us we're going to need. Um, and we know that if we had that now, we wouldn't have 50,000 people on the social housing waiting list. And I think you've got a good ally in the Property Council of New South Wales. With yes. That too. Is that right? So we've actually got agreement across the board. We've been working on this in the last six months. And the Property Council, Business New South Wales, Committee for Sydney, Shelter, Chia. And so we can see that right across our community, business and not-for-profits can see the benefits of investment in social housing because we know it's better for our economy and it's better for our community. So could we just elaborate on that a little bit more because um, I think that's an opportunity for us here in the Northern Territory as well. What would, what would you say to local business and um, I guess building construction, property interests that um, maybe to date haven't been as engaged um, on seeing the opportunity that social and affordable housing construction might do. I mean, we can often, as I said before, we can often see maybe some stigma or some downside around public housing. And because let's face it, it has been rolled out pretty poorly in the past in terms of the way um, tenancies have been managed and the, and the location and, and condition, condition of dwelling. So there are a lot of issues with the current stock. But social public housing, affordable housing done well can, can, as you said before, be very positive in terms of the way that we do community development. Um, so what would you say in terms to, to, to property and, and, and building an industry as to why they should get behind building more social and affordable housing? What's in it for them? Look, the, and, and that's the conversation exactly that we've been having. We've formed something called the Good Growth Alliance, um, building on that um, engagement with the private sector and basically what's in it for them is better communities for everyone because business can't secure workers because they can't afford to live by um, the businesses. So they literally can't open their doors because they can't get people. 
we've got builders telling us that their apprentices are sleeping in their cars where the building sites are because they can't afford the housing. We've got situations where families, I mean, teachers are sleeping in their cars in the south coast of um, New South Wales. I was down in that area in October and I met with a mum with six kids, another mum pregnant, working, two children sleeping in a tent. And, and we've got a situation in New South Wales where tents are filling the gap for social housing. We've got a sector that wants to see investment in housing because it's better for business and it's better for a surety for their sector. Um, and we also have, I think, an interesting discourse or an interesting dialogue from the private sector now around mixed use developments. So we're increasingly hearing from the Stocklands, the lend leases, who do this in internationally at huge scale, right? Now saying we'd like to see that in um, we'd like to see that in Australia. And what the actual the only person who's not at the table in New South Wales for this is government, state government, federal government's at the table, superannuations at the table, business property we just don't have the state government commitment yet <laughs> and why is that i wonder why aren't they at the table because the billion dollar investment which is only one percent of the state government at this stage um requires courage it requires courage to put that kind of money on the table and say you know we can see the benefit here we've run the numbers and we know that if we get to 10 percent by 2050 we'll actually save the government 1.5 billion dollars a year and overall, um, over the projected estimates, I think it's $23 billion. It pays for itself tenfold. But it's not the economic case that we're arguing here. It's an ideological one about the market being able to deliver for those most vulnerable. And we know that the market has not and will not deliver the kind of housing that we need for vulnerable people, the, the social housing infrastructure for those in poverty. And that's why there needs to be government intervention and subsidy. And I think just in, in just uh, just to put that another way, or just to summarise it, I think what what you said there also in, in conclusion is we can't rely on just releasing um, seventy thousand dwellings a year and expecting that is magically going to address affordability for low and moderate income earners. Um, you know, it's it, it's going to take a particular type of intervention, particular type of support and sub market housing system to to make it work for for those with greatest need. That's right. And I think all the players want to step into that space. And what the missing piece is um, the government subsidy, whether that be land or whatever that might be. And that's also where community want to see their tax dollars go because it's impacting their families. We've spoken a fair bit about housing and, and I think we, we all agree that we need to have a plan to, to provide social and affordable housing at scale so that we uh, end homelessness, but also provide um, all Australians with access to housing that, that's appropriate, affordable uh, for their needs. Um, in the meantime, you must be concerned with um, surging rates of homelessness. I, I know we haven't got the latest census data out just yet, but I guess anecdotally, you'd be expecting to see um, higher numbers than what we've had on 2016. Definitely, and I think that's where we've got to get to kind of now, next and later, you know, you know, we've got to start building um, the social housing now, but we also have to be able to respond to those in crisis. And that's why we've asked for a 30% increase in funding for services to meet demand. And we've also um, asked for the appointment of a homelessness commissioner. Now, this isn't to add more bureaucracy. It's actually to cut through the red tape. There's a couple of commissioner positions um, in New South Wales that have had great success, one of which being the nighttime commissioner, the 24-hour economy commissioner. 
who was able to revitalise Sydney, you know, post lockdowns, post pandemic. And we can see that millions of dollars that's been invested into that. And, and we understand the importance of that for the broader community and economy. But I guess what we're asking for is that same level of attention and investment to be considered for responding to housing and homelessness, because right now we've got ministers with different responsibility across portfolio. And it's um it's an absolute you know, maze to navigate for services and who gets the person who's worst impacted by that is the person experiencing homelessness. I, I, I think that's a good area to, to explore a bit further with the National Housing and Homeless Agreement being um, up for review over the next 12 months. It's been a 12 month extension there as you'd be aware and an opportunity for a, a fresh look at the way that funding is allocated to states and territories to address housing and homelessness need. Do you see some opportunities, therefore, to, I guess, get better value for money um, for the states and territories, doing things better, having maybe more accountability, whatever it might be? Do you, what are some of the things that you'd like to see under any future National Housing and Homelessness Agreement? So we definitely like to see the housing and homelessness linked and that was we're really strongly supportive of that um you know for a long time there have been separate discussions and it just doesn't make sense in practice or in policy sense we're also keen to see um you know some kind of long-term contracts and investment we've just seen today the new south wales labor government if they're successful they will commit to five-year contracts but we need to see those longer contracts with indexation to enable organizations to plan um, and to strategize and respond to the challenges. Because right now with people on rolling year to year contracts, they can't retain the staff and the talent. So that's a big challenge for our sector, the workforce retention, which needs indexation and needs the EOR, the ERO to be supported federally as well. You know, we also want to see um, improved data collection and shared data. You know, these boundaries are invisible for our clients and the people we work with. And people are having to tell their story over and over again to multiple different departments. And, you know, you can hear the story of a person who has a property in Western Sydney, finds themselves, um, you know, with a mental health condition in the inner city and is now filling out a housing application again. <laughs> like it's only until three months down the line. So you start to get, you know, that's, those things can be improved. We also need to see... Um, improvements in meanwhile use we've got in New South Wales we know we've got entities within New South Wales that hold land like transport and infrastructure land for long-term infrastructure projects there's no reason that on safe land that's not contaminated that has good connectivity that that land couldn't be used with prefab housing for up to five years to support transitional housing um, to get people out of refuges we also need a solution at the national level for people on temporary visas. It's an increasing challenge for specialist homelessness services to respond to people who don't have residency status, but who find themselves homeless. Um, the Federal Immigration Department have responsibility for those people, and yet um, don't ensure that those people don't fall into homelessness, which can have further costs for the broader community, as well as the moral implications for those um, and impacts for those people and trauma impacts. So, you know, we've got a number of recommendations we'd like to reflect back. Um, one of the ways we're getting ready for that, if I can talk to that, is we're putting together a 10-year sector-led systems change strategy. So we're taking a systems change perspective to say, as a sector, what are the things that we want to work on together to end homelessness? And this is about a shared direction 
-hmm. and shared measurements so that we can tell the story together about sector-led solutions to inform that national plan, but also inform the review of the state plan. What are some of those sector-led solutions? Have you got to the point of identifying some of them yet? We've just started and we're starting with people with lived expertise. You know, we're asking them what's working well, what's not working well, what would they like to see differently and how do they want to be involved in co-producing the solutions. And, you know, we're hearing time and again, the siloed approach, the competitive tendering is fracturing the sector, um, the stop-start nature, treating the um, sector like a market to respond and not being more holistic in sharing the resources and of government and community sector to solve the problem together you know kind of outsourcing the problem to the not-for-profit sector to to get them to be the wholly responsible for the issue when we know that's not the case particularly when government holds the majority of resources absolutely so, yeah these are some of the things that are coming through yeah Absolutely. And in terms of uh, the sector, some people in government, and I've, I've had this said to me before as well, look, we do invest a lot of millions of dollars into specialist homelessness services. I mean, I personally don't think it's a huge amount of funding compared to other government programs and issues. But the, the, the argument goes, we do spend quite a bit of money on, on the sector, but it's hard to know if we're getting good value for that money in terms of outcomes. What would you say in response to that? Because I've got a, I mean, I guess I've got a view, but I'll let hear yours first. What would, what would you say? Sure. And I think it's like, um, this is interesting. Okay. So in the New South Wales context, services are funded to do very, so the way they're funded is very prescriptive. So they're given the money, the number of people there to support the types of people with the level of complexity. I don't know how you measure that from a tender application, um, as well as the way in which they should provide that support early intervention crisis the you know it's really prescriptive to the point it stifles and strangles innovation services are more than well equipped to respond if this if the funding contract said spend this money to end homelessness for as many people as you can see right and take a step back and that's not to say we want to move to outcomes based commissioning that's about payment by results because we know the evidence says that for our sector, that doesn't work in the complexity of need that we need to respond to. But what we do want to do is move to an outcome-based fundings contract that enables government to get out of the way of innovation from the experts to deliver on what they need to do. And that way that opens up opportunities for services to say, how can we work smarter together with what we have? Not saying, no, sorry, I have to get this young person who's 16 and homeless out of this transitional accommodation service because my contract says they can only stay here for 12 months. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the uh, domestic family violence shelters up here um, in the past would have put up um, women experiencing homelessness um, overnight, but then there were changes that they could only take in women who had experienced domestic family violence, which means, a pretty, in my view, a pretty crazy situation. If you've got a couple of beds free, why would you not take on a woman who needs shelter, regardless of whether or not she's experienced domestic family violence. So there's some, some pretty interesting um, caveats that are put around. Mm -hmm. And that's just one of a small, but you know, many examples of stifling innovation where we can do things better. Do you think there are areas though where the sector can improve by working together through collaboration and, and more innovation and I guess learning from, from best practice? I think that it's the only way. And I think, I think what we've got now is we've got the, the innovation is not in the solution, right? We know the solutions to ending homelessness. They're so well evidence-based 
it is maddening at times to be in the sector and attend another event that tells you how to end homelessness. I can see it in my colleagues. You know, I can see, you know, when we talk about burnout in our sector, people are not burnt out from the hardness of the work. They're in it for that. What they're burnt out from is a system that is just designed to fail, a system that doesn't enable them to meet the outcomes they know that are possible in at the scale that they want to and can do because they're completely met by barriers along the way. What I mean by that is you take housing first. We know housing first works for people with complex needs who've experienced long-term episodes of homelessness. It's been evidenced through COVID and many years before that, not only in Australia, but across the world in remote and urban settings, it is you know, well-tested and researched. And what we know we, works for that is wraparound supports and access to housing and sustained support for that person for as long as they need it in any way they need it, because this is a person with high complex needs. And yet what we continually get is these piecemeal pilot projects. So it's very frustrating. So I think the innovation is not in the solutions. I think the innovation is in how we work better together. I think that's where we're going to break new ground as a sector. And it's actually going to be going, how can we improve efficiencies by sharing our resources in a way that we can break down our boundaries um, and trust one another? Because in New South Wales, that translated from when the government said work better together, they forced everyone into subcontracting arrangements and completely disseminated the power dynamics to the lead agencies and the subcontracted agencies, which really fractured and uh, hindered relationships. So we've got to get to a more equal footing around skills, knowledge and competency. Um, that's possible, but it will take time. We've got to redesign the plane while we're flying it. Absolutely. Uh, Trina, you've been at uh, home since uh, New South Wales now for seven months. Um, seven months into the job, how optimistic are you that you can end homelessness in New South Wales? Look, we're we're all passing the baton on this challenge together, right? We, we step into these roles in the knowledge that we want to make it a bit better um, than when we found it, um, you know, and each of us who take these leadership roles or take these, you know, whether it's case manager, admin worker, whatever your role is, we're all stepping into this going, how can I add my bit and hopefully move it along together with the people who I'm with? And so I think it is achievable. I think particularly in New South Wales nationally, but also in New South Wales, we are at the we're on the precipice of change and we've got more influence capability than I think we are aware of. And I guess as the peak body, we want to create the conditions for our sector to lead that change and to drive that change at, at our state level, but also nationally um, and create as much opportunity for that as possible. So I'm optimistic that we can get some legacy outcomes. Yeah. And just a final, I guess, chance to comment 20 people who might be watching or listening to this podcast who are out there doing the hard yards as caseworkers, as support workers and so forth. What would you say to them about the work they do and its importance? Look, this is critical work. You know, you don't do this work, you know, for, it's, we don't work in banks, we don't work in offices in that way. You know, this work is legacy work, it's intrinsic and we're intrinsically motivated to do it because of the importance of it. And I think what I would say is, you know, let's not gang up on each other, let's gang up on the problem. Um, and, you know, stepping towards working together, um, even with those we, we feel have different views, we have common ground, we've got a shared mission and what we achieve together will be stronger than what we achieve alone. 
Trina Jones, well said. It's been an absolute pleasure having you uh, sharing the couch with you today. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. You've been uh, listening to or watching Trina Jones, the Chief Executive Officer of Homelessness New South Wales. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to continue to monitor and, and listen to our new episodes as they come out, please hit the subscribe button or follow us on YouTube or on one of the other social media platforms. And until next time, thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to Episode 3, Season 2 of Sharing the Couch by Anti-Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Anti-Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.